and welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall. He almost forgot who he was. Well, I was trying to figure out how to, <laughs> how to get the Ben Gervich uh, introduction in, and I, I'll just say it now. Um, our friend from Australia, Ben Gervich, who's a listener of the podcast, is here. Um, Hello. Sitting in. <laughs> and I'm Kamala Lopez, and we're very excited because today we have Rob Powers here, who was uh, the creator and visual effects supervisor for portions of Avatar. Well, it's actually the supervisor and the creator of the virtual art department. So what is a virtual art department? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the virtual art department is, is the first film that that has existed. We created it on Avatar, but it's, it's now been implemented on several films since then. But it's a, it's a counterpart of the traditional art department in this new virtual workspace that, that you know, uh, everyone is starting to work in. So um, we interface with a lot of different departments. We were kind of like a hub for production. Uh, we fed from the art department. Our role was to take the beautiful work that had been done and really create a real-time uh, uh, experience uh, for Jim to make the movie in. I don't even really understand what that means. <laughs> well, imagine this. It's like a, an uber video game in real time where Jim Cameron is the first person player and he's making his movie in real time. So the problem with the past with uh, visual effects films and animation films is that they were really alien to the way that filmmaking you know, has always existed where there's discovery and there's like you walk onto a set like this beautiful place we're sitting in and you see things that inspire you as a filmmaker or an actor and uh, you know, a cinematographer even with lighting. And you can actually you know, mold that and discover that in the filmmaking process. So it's a living collaborative process. Well, that's where we were and it's amazing. But then when you get into a situation with heavy visual effects films and animation, all of a sudden people are in these alien environments where they're imagining, trying to imagine on this empty room with like people wearing strange uniforms with dots doing motion capture of what is gonna look, you know, come back from visual effects uh, post facility six months later, eight months later. A year later so it's really difficult to have that kind of immersive living experience of a filmmaker and if you noticed in Avatar that was why it was such a unique movie for me was because it was the first film like that um, so heavily you know influenced by animation and visual effects where it felt like it was really a live-action movie that you were immersed in you were a part of yes and that's it was true right and how did you accomplish that well, it was driven by Jim Cameron's hand. So he actually, every camera move that you see in that film, all of the composition, all of the decisions that a filmmaker would make, he was able to make because we provided him this real-time workspace to make the movie in. And he held an actual physical camera right. that was really a virtual camera. Is that right? That's, that's right. There were certain cases where um, first, you know, one, uh, a large portion of the film was all virtual. So the virtual camera would just be representing, say, actors, as a Navi or of an avatar and the virtual environments in real time. So he could move around and see all of that on his camera as he was watching the actors perform in front of him. He was seeing them perform as their CG character in real time in the in real time environment. How is that even possible? It wasn't possible. So it was what we, you know, I started working on the film in 2005 and it was a mandate from Jim and Rob Legato had made, uh, the visual effects supervisor, Academy Award winner, had pitched this concept to Jim and they had done a, a prototype test which you know, proved that it was possible, but at that time it was very limited in the visual you know, environments, for example, of what 
information would be fed to the director. So it was more kind of in the line of previs where, you know, you like kind of... Like what happened in Panic Room. Right. So you had sort of, you know, rough approximations. You had you had geometry there, but it wasn't, you know, all of the beauty of the lighting and, and all of the um, propage and, and the art direction uh, and the beauty of the environments was and the lighting cues were missing. So by previs, you're saying it was more like a, a kind of a 3D virtual storyboarding of the, of the film, but it wasn't actually used in the film. Is right. that right? Right. So, so the process that existed before previs was usually used, you know, for larger sequences where there would be a problem to solve, or they, were, they needed to figure out, you know, camera uh, in, a, in a complicated motion, or you know, some animation testing. But they really didn't focus on the art direction, the art of it, the cinematography, and all of the things that are part of a living set when you're shooting a live-action movie. So the virtual art department was created when when I took the set that they had done the test on, and I said, Jim. You know, at that time, we weren't really sure what the technology could handle. If we put all of that information in the real-time engine, would it be able to support, you know, would it, would it choke, would it, you know. So I said, let me, I know the software really well. We were using Motion Builder, which at that time was Kadara before it was purchased by the other company, um, Autodesk now, but Alias. And so I said, let me take a pass at this. And I did a version where I populated it with all the um, plants and you know as as we had been working on the art department for a long time and I did lighting and shadows and all these things that you would want to see um, visually appealing things that would invoke the artwork and he saw that and he, at that moment he was like okay I love this it's possible I want you to create this new department the virtual art department I want you to supervise the environments and, and at that moment in time my role shifted uh, before I was animation technical director on the film for about a year and a half so at that point, I, I created the virtual art department, and we started um, creating, you know, translating all of the environments that we had been designed for the entire film, all the Pandora. Um, there was even a virtual environment created for every live action set. Really? Yeah, because we found that as this technology evolved, and we saw it in front of us, it, it actually became uh, a, a really useful tool for production design and for um, for the discovery design process itself. So Rick Carter was supervising, you know, the uh, live action sets in New Zealand, and he was able to walk through these sets and do virtual location scouts way ahead of time and, and vet out any problems and make sure that there were no issues with stairs or the size of doors or, you know, all that thing before it was even thought about being, you know, put through construction. So it was a really useful process for all areas. I mean, there was the, the level where Jim was, which was the ultimate level where the film was made, but then there was this whole process ahead of time with the art department and art directors and production designers and uh, you know and, and the virtual production team where this workspace was really useful to actually design the movie. Did did Jim show it to the actors as well? Absolutely, the actors could see their performance as as soon as they finished their performance. They could monitors were placed all around the stage and they could see their performance as the character. Wow. So they could adjust, you know, they could make those adjustments. As someone that did an entire movie talking to an ex, that really would have been helpful. Absolutely. Or in a doll, a little tiny doll, doll and an ex, so and you never can, you can to see. a person. Exactly, it's awesome. That movie is Doll Man, and it's Please. available at your local um, video Not store. Not really so um, much. I can't wait to see that. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in the early stages when you came up with this process, which is, it seems like you're kind of paving the way for uh, the way movies are going to be made in the future, not, not just, the, um, just movies like Avatar, but also live action movies, it sounds like. I think so. Um, what kind of an environment were you working in? Uh, like where were you doing it? What kind of computers were you working on? How did you make this kind of thing happen and what kind of resources did you have? 
Well, when we started, I started in 2005 early on. I was at, actually at Jim Cameron's house mm. in Malibu. So every day I would drive through the gates, you know, and wave to Britney Spears who moved across the way and, <laughs> and, and, and you, know, you know, see Mel Gibson and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and have that on the way to work. Um, <laughs> it was just a, it was a great experience. And, uh, you know, so we started there and he has, uh, there's, a, there's a place called Lower House, which is kind of, you know, a little, you know, getting a little legendary in its, in, in its name. But it's a house that is right next to Jim's main, main house and it's where we worked. So there were... Um, Amazing. When I my first day at work, I walked in. I saw Wayne Barlow, who's a legendary science fiction artist. That's one, I, I'm a big fan of his. Um, and he was like boiling an egg at the you know kitchen, and I'm like, oh my god, that's Wayne Barlow. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And there was Neville Page there, and Yuri Bartoli, and you know, it was it was just a, a real uh, wonderful group of people that Jim had brought in uh, to to design Pandora. You know, mm. the creatures, the environments, and so I was very fortunate and lucky to be chosen by him as the um, first CG artist that he brought on himself and requested to be on the film working with these guys and having the opportunity to sit in the room next to Wayne Barlow and he designed some crazy creature and I can do an animation really quickly and <clears throat> you know the first time the great Leonoptrix flew I took a design from Wayne Barlow and I did that test for Jim and the whole really? the, we worked out the whole X-Wing attack motion and um, it was just amazing to you know, to do that, and at that time, it was myself and and one other person, uh, Andrew Cars, that was on loan from ILM, an amazing modeler, supervisor, that did a lot of the stuff on uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and ZBrush, all those underwater sea guys that had all the barnacles, oh, yeah. and yeah, he's, he's an amazing, amazing artist. Has his own company, I think, called Freedom of Teach. That he they do these um, great sculptures for modelers to uh, to, to use, um, and. Uh, so when they draw the character and then they want you to animate it, what is your process for taking the drawing uh, and turning it into some kind of a well? First, modeling character? is the first step, making sure the proportions and you know you get the model correct to match the artwork and that the model, um, the flow of, of the model uh, can achieve those poses mm -hmm. because. You know, in modeling, if anybody out there you know does modeling, you know that the way that you lay out the little points in space mm -hmm. and the way that you tie those polygons together, um, the flow of that can influence how the geometry can be deformed. So you have to. I don't really know do what that, that means. <clears throat> that just means that the form of you can lay things out where they look the same, but actually, if you dig underneath the surface, they're not the same. I see. So <clears throat> the architecture. The architecture, the infrastructure of what the model is, has to be thought about to allow for the, the uh, poses that you know the, the creature needs to make for example. Do you study animals or how do you? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah tons of reference of animals you know a lot of the um, you know even back to the Muybridge books about you know the animals in motion books looking at horses running and you know all that kind of stuff because one of the another one of the problems we, we solved early on there was uh, you know the, these creatures Jim had the idea they were gonna have six legs so how is that gonna work? How are, are the you know, are they going? How are the legs going to be offset? Are they going to be? You know, what's the timing of that offset? So those were the kinds of things I was helping kind of discover with him, and he was, you know, right there, active in the whole process, and it was amazing to see the work of the environment and watch Pandora come to life and see his. He's a beautiful art, you know, amazing artist. The, the work he comes in with, literally, <laughs> physically literally. drawing, painting, things? everything. Really, he is an and people don't realize that that he's an, a great technician. He's a master of the technology. But he's also, like he walks in with these paintings and these drawings, or he can just sit there and do it for you in front of you. He's a great artist. I mean, I have, you know, there's an example here of, um, on my iPad, um, mm -hmm. 
where uh, the film that I did with him before this, Aliens of the Deep, this is the creature that he painted for me to design. Whoa. <clears throat> and that's his painting. Wow. I mean, he's an amazing, amazing, amazing artist. He is and something else. Yeah, he's totally, totally amazing. And What is that done in, in acrylics? or? Um, that was on black uh, paper, and uh, uh, I believe it was acrylic. Yeah. So, but here's, here's that creature after I designed it. Let me see if I have the, well, here's the wing from it. But you can see this is the kind of stuff I could do really quickly. So there, that was its sinusoidal wing motion that I came up with. Wow. And uh, wow. he now, loved that. And It's like a leaf. Yeah, totally. When you say really quickly, how, how long would it take to do something like what you just showed us? What he showed us was an animation of the 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 way the character moves. The wing unfurling. And it's, it's a character that looks something like, like a stingray. A stingray and a jellyfish all together, perhaps. Yeah, so that was just a rough, this is a rough test of the geometry. You can see the, the stages of development. You know, early on you're just doing, uh, this, this is fairly complex because of course Jim Cameron wants as many, you know, complex things as possible and yeah. Uh, he wants the design to be interesting to him, so it, it wasn't a simple task. It was a creature that had many, many, many tendrils and internal body parts colliding and the wing motion all together. And I did this myself. This was, I mean, I think this is why he wanted me to come on Avatar early on is because on this particular project, I had a company in Glendale, and I supervised, modeled, animated, rigged, lit, and rendered and de delivered this in stereoscopic IMAX myself. How long do you think it took you? Um, well, the, the project, you know, went through the development phase, so we didn't know from the beginning that this is how the creature was going to look. Yeah. But once that was determined, it really didn't take me that long because, the, like I was explaining before, you know, the, 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 the software choices that you make are really important. So you have to do something that allows you to work really quickly and to, most importantly, from me being from film school and loving the final image, mm -hmm. you have to choose things where you can get to that image really quickly. Mm -hmm. And what's really quickly to you? Uh, well, it would depend. Let me show you. Uh, when I went in for my initial meeting on that project, which was Aliens of the Deep with Jim Cameron, the stereoscopic IMAX film. Um, Is he, that out, by the way? Yes, it's been out for, it's, it's, it's a fairly old project. It's probably 2004, 2005. But all, you know, IMAX, stereoscopic renders. And when I went in for my initial meeting, when I first met Jim, uh, a great producer, Chuck Comiskey, that actually gave Jim his first job uh, at Roger Corman's when he was art director there, uh, Chuck is a producer and still works with Jim. He supervised all the stereo and Avatar, for example. But a brilliant guy, Chuck Kamiski, amazing producer, and he, he brought me in, you know, got me connected uh, for this pitch to, to get the work potentially. So I'm going, okay, I've got this opportunity. I don't, what are my chances of getting to work with Jim Cameron on this film? So I went in and I sat there, and Jim had obviously been meeting with studios and animators and technical people all day, and they've been hearing the, you know, blah, blah, blah about that. And I sat down and he said something about, well, this alien that I'm thinking about is, is basically similar to the Spanish dancer. And as a child, I was a very, uh, I, was, I loved aquariums and I loved sea life and I, I always had a marine aquarium my whole life and would read books about that stuff. And so I said, oh, it's, it's the, uh, uh, the flatworm from the Caribbean. You know, and I knew, I knew the whole thing <laughs> of what he was talking about. And I said, it's got a sinusoidal wing motion. And, you know, and so when I did that, I knew what he was talking about on a marine biology level Oh he, his, his look just changed and I knew at sure. that moment it was like okay I connected with Jim on this way so our relationship just took off from that point and um, I went home that night and he had talked about how he wanted something graceful and beautiful and transparent and you know so I went home in Lightwave and I did this myself in one night so <gasps> I was able to so model beautiful. and render and animate and do soft body dynamics and bring this back to our next meeting 
and say, is this kind of what you think? And other companies were coming in with just like, you know, notes that they had taken and, you know, budgets and whatever they thought. And I came in with like imagery of what I thought, you know, and so the, the software choice in that case allowed me one in one person to do the whole process and, you know, one night. Well, I know one of the so. things that people say when they see the movie Avatar that they um, remark about is the way the uh, plants moved, you know, the plants that would suck themselves into right, the, right. And very much like aquatic plants. Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's basically, basically a, a feather duster worm from an aquarium. You mm -hmm. know, if you, if you, I mean, I, I've had those my whole life in my aquarium. And here's, a, here's an example of an early test we did at Lower House um, based on a design that Jim loved uh, that done by Yuri Bartoli. Let me show you this, this beautiful, so Yuri did a sketch like this and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, here's a creature that, you know, could live on trees and could be in Pandora. So that's the kind of stuff I would get. And then I would take, I went and shot um, some footage at the Huntington Gardens. And I would take, you know, a couple days to uh, take that footage and take Yuri's sketch and model, rig, and animate and render a little test for Jim to see. And say, hey, this is kind of what, you know, maybe this is how it would look sitting on a tree. And, and like, he sees that and he gets really excited because at this moment in time, there was no real animation work done yet. There was nothing present. For so, our listeners, what Rob is showing us now is a, a, an animation of a tree with some bugs that are very similar to um, animals that are in the movie. And it is stunningly realistic looking. And it's just showing it to us on our iPad. And done in two days. Kind of blown away here. <laughs> done in two days, by the way, by me at Jim's house on, you know, wow. using primarily Lightwave to render it and model it and animate it. What kind it. of computers were you doing this work on? <clears throat> Very high end. I mean, we had access to um, really nice workstations. They, it, we were mostly Windows based, um, and uh, you know, we would have basically a you know um, eight core processor with you know um, sixteen gigs of RAM at least. And the really important part would be um, at that time. This is two thousand five, so very high end graphics cards for that time mm -hmm. for OpenGL display and for. Um, real-time display. And you say you were using a lot of different software. A lot of different things. software. Anything that could get the job done. Um, you know, again, I think that you have to choose the product or the software for what you're trying to do at that time and what resources you have. So if I'm working in a larger studio like ILM or Weta, I would have a pipeline that is, you know, uh, logical for a large studio that has a lot of TDs, a lot of technical support, the resources to, to pay for that, and, you know, a What's huge TDs? technical directors, okay. um, people that can basically do all of the voodoo behind the scenes with programming and scripting to make artists' lives easy so they can actually do their job. Because when you bring a person in there that animates or models or whatever, they don't want to think about C++ programming, you know. So you have to have a whole pipeline in place uh, with those larger productions and larger facilities that just makes it easy for everyone. But unfortunately, most of us are not ILM and Weta. We don't have those resources. So when I'm sitting at Jim Cameron's house by myself, uh, you know, I have to make different decisions about softwares that allow me to, to get my job done quickly. So I was using things like Vue, um, or if you're French, Vue. Uh, <laughs> you know, which I call it because I was dealing with the developers and they were all from oh, they, France. They and, wouldn't know what you're talking about. Yeah, so everybody here doesn't know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, oh, I'm using Vue. And they're like, what? You mean <laughs> Vue? It's like, well, I've been talking to the French people all the whole time and they say Vue. So it's a great software for creating environments and it populates based on ecosystems. And it's just like, it's a wonderful product. I loved it. And um, I use Lightwave 3D, obviously, the company I'm working for now um, that I'm helping them with the development on. And um, I loved it because I've always used 
uh, a lot of different types of products. But um, Lightweight was great for me because I was able to model and rig and texture and animate and render, most importantly, render in the package. So a larger pipeline, like you know, if you're, if you're basing something on Maya or um, 3D Max or one of those, most people would render in Mental Ray or RenderMan, which are their own product. Mm -hmm. They are a separate thing that is, is part of the process that, that really, you know, kind of um, uh, are, are their own technology and they, they require shader writing and the support for that. Whereas, you know, Lightwave's render is amazing. I knew I had done work on the Aliens of Deep I just showed you um, and it held up to stereoscopic IMAX projection. Um, so I knew I was good there and it was quick for me. So I was able to get those kinds of tests done without having all of those TDs and those people around me. What kind of render time are you talking about for, let's say, that Huntington Garden thing? Um, we're talking probably a couple hours. Wow. Yeah, very fast. fast. Yeah, and that was at that was at HD resolution, so I mean, it was roughly 2K. Mm -hmm. So that's the the strength, you know. Like, I would I go to Weta and say, you know, change your pipeline to Vu and Lightwave? No, because it doesn't make sense there. Because it's not, you know, you you, you can't. It's not as scalable like that. But there are many opportunities and many, you know, I'll show you. Have you seen the fish dog commercial? That's kind of a no. pretty big buzz on, online. Yeah. Um, this is another thing, you know, that was done in a really quick turnaround. Um, the person had, like, literally no time to do this, you know, no budget, because you know how commercial work is. But this is the... Oh, the dog. Isn't that great? It's a fish. Wow. It's like a fish dog. It, it's a VW commercial a that was done, and it won the award at the Cannes uh, Advertising Oh, my Awards. God. But just a great commercial, great thing. And this is indicative of a situation where a small company would need to do something quickly, mm -hmm. and they used Lightwave all for this, for modeling and animation and rigging, and it's just an amazing example of, of that work. Something else. This is, um, I think you can see this in the newsletter that's posted on Newtech's website. They have uh, a newsletter that, for okay. Lightwave, and then well, people can go, that, yeah, then. they can link to that. But you can see the great, the, the beauty of it. It's genius. Isn't it hilarious? Genius. I want one. A Me fish too. Dog? I want a fish dog. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. It's just quirky and weird enough, you know, but it won the award and it really stood out at the show. I love this, my favorite shot. <laughs> on the tongue. He's got the tongue hanging out the window. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, stuff like that, it, it just, it, it, there's, a, there's a relevance to understanding there are options that we all need to have. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things where I really like working at New Tech. I took the job, you know, I was talking to them for a while. I had never worked in development. I'm all from visual effects. Mm -hmm. But I think it's in a very important time right now to, uh, to keep options and to keep you know, uh, 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 different products on the market so that everything can be better. Because without competition, you know, it, it, it just doesn't push the development of things. Well, and the other thing is um, no independent filmmakers can possibly have that sort of access that you were speaking about in terms of those two larger companies. Um, so you need to have, some, if this is the way film is going, we independent filmmakers need to have some way to be able to Absolutely. make stuff. That's why you have companies like Asylum, and they use a lot of you know, heavy light wave in their, in their pipelines. You know, they did the Megalith Shark and versus mm -hmm. Squid with Debbie yeah. Gibson. That whole right. So they, you know, these, these kinds of places which have turned things out really quickly. They want a professional look. They want things to look photorealistic. Most of them use something like Lightwave in their in their pipeline because it's it just makes sense. You know, you can you can do so much with the package without having to have all of that.
Another thing is um, Autodesk um, allows students to download their software for uh, free, I think, something like that, because they really want people to learn them. Um, but of course, you still have to buy the licenses when you're going to be make, doing, doing the actual work for your film. But and then if you want to render something that looks going. like um, the advertisement of like Lord of the Rings, for example, you have to use RenderMan. Mm -hmm. which is a whole different thing and a whole different licensing thing. I mean, Lightwave, you buy it for $700, it's like, and they have student pricing, I think, 200 bucks, and then Lightwave, you can download for free off their website for a trial for like 30 days or something like that as well. Is that something that, um, let's say I have, uh, I have no background in 3D programming, would that be something that I could pick up if I was sort of knew how to do Photoshop? And a couple other things. If if, you're, if it's something you're interested in, I would say absolutely. I mean, there's so many people. You know, I've seen students that have picked it up really quickly because uh, you know it's like a, a workflow that is you know you basically logically progress from modeling to rigging and animation to rendering, and then you get your final you know uh, output. So, um, I, it, it depends on you know how interested you are in that and how much time you are, are willing to put into it. But just like Photoshop, it's it's not the easiest thing in the world. You know, there's there's a learning curve there. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I do think that there are certain packages that are easier to learn than others just because of the depth. Yeah, Maya freaked me out. A lot of people say that. So many know. menus and like you right click or third just click or whatever, and there's all these different much. choices. And for us, we were like, the Whoa. thing The thing that is, is a challenge for me with Maya and other products like that sometimes is, you know, I just want to get the final image. I'm a film student at heart, like I said, from USC. Mm -hmm. I'm a good old, you know, USC film school guy trying to get my great image. And I just want, I don't want a bunch of technology in my way. And so I'm not a programmer. I didn't go to programming school. I didn't go to animation school. I didn't do all of that. I went to film school. And so anything that I've taught myself about visual effects and animation has been myself, you know, self-taught. And it's really a means to an end. It's for me to get an image. Mm -hmm. And that's all I care about. And I think that over the years, that's why I've done well at certain companies, because I approach every problem that we are facing with how can we get the best image for the director's vision. And that's really what it's all about, because people get caught up in all of the technology. And I think that really, as Avatar shows, for example, that all of that is, a, is, is false. All of this approved, you know, official way of doing things, and this is the industry standard of this or that, it's all there because we don't know any better and we haven't progressed far enough yet to get us to where we are, are it should be effortless for artists. And that's, the, the, products like ZBrush, for example, start to kind of move in that direction, even though they still have a funky what interface. It, what is that one? It's a, it's a product uh, that does the sculpting, but it gives you an interface for uh, modeling where you can actually kind of push things around like clay and you can move around objects and paint on them as if you're so it's 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 moving and that's why it has a huge you know uh, user base that have responded to it because it started to move in that direction but I think all products are going to move in that direction just out of necessity it's kind of what we did on Avatar for Jim is that all of this technology served to make the director actually you know have a way to make his movie in the way that that he should be making his movie which is in real time to discover the process with the actors and, and to, to do it that way and so you know if, if it had just been you know some other similar type movies which I don't want to you know rag on anybody or name anything but when you are just working Clash off of the of, Titans well <laughs> no, script has been written and you're just implementing something that you thought of before and all that, that's not really the best way that movies are made. They, that, that's a great uh, roadmap, 
But then why would you ever, you know, shoot down a better idea that you have on the set the day of? If you see something or the actor thinks of a brilliant thing and, you know, you incorporate it, it makes the movie better. So that's what was able to happen on mm. Avatar. For example, the scene that, uh, where um, uh, Sam Worthington's character Jake was running through an e bioluminescent jungle and he was touching those things and they were going. That was a scene that we created in the bad um, and it originated there as opposed to artwork as you know, most of the other environments did. But because those uh, anemonoids is what they were called, those little plants he was touching, because he saw those on the day of the performance and was able to respond and ha had an idea where he, you know, he, him and Jim had that conversation, it was in the movie. Whereas, but what was he actually touching? When he was um, running around. Well, on the stage, there would be proxy objects that there would, would be, be stand-in that he would hit. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And so, so he would, you know, if there was a contact point that was important like that, a story point, then um, Andrew Jones was a great guy that would uh, handle all of that and would, would uh, basically have a stand-in object there for them to interact with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but there, it, it was a very interesting process because it kind of did for Jim what... Uh, you know, that's why I, I found it exciting to start working with Newtech because their products have kind of always done that too. They kind of enable people that didn't have access to, to things because it was out of reach financially to do things. You know, mm -hmm. like the, 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 the toaster that they had in the past and Lightwave did that for 3D and now the TriCaster takes all of this technology and boils it down into a little product that people can make their own TV shows and, you know, uh, broadcast them live on the internet. So I love the philosophy of technology serving artists instead yeah, of the other way around. Good thing. I, I don't, I don't want us to move. be prisoners of, yeah. of, of, of bullshit. Because you, know, you do, honestly. you just get totally overwhelmed sometimes. You're like, I want to make this thing, then you open up After Effects or whatever right. it is, and you're like, oh my God. Right. Uh, <laughs> so if I Maybe can just, I can find somebody who'll do this. <laughs> absolutely. If I can think about it in the way that my mind thinks about it, and, and artistically, that's the interface that we want. We don't want all of this other, this stuff jumping through hoops that people have you know, come to accept as the way to do it. It's the same thing with visual effects movies. It's like, you know, it's accepted that it was like on a, a green screen or a dead room and then like you know, months later you would see, and then that was the process. That was the official process. Is that the way to make a movie? I don't think so. I think that we accepted it because it was where the technology was. Mm -hmm. In the same way that they accepted, you know, film cameras stopping movement when sound came and they had to put them in these giant enclosures to, you know, that we had this beautiful language of film motion in the silent era, and then all of a sudden, boom, the cameras were just sitting there and the films were awful, you know, because it was just like a theatrical performance. Like, um, if I can interrupt, when they, I know when they first started doing visual effects shots, they had to lock off the camera as well because exactly. they didn't know how to track. It's because we are prisoners to technology until we can, can conquer it and make mm -hmm. it, you know, it really needs to be the other way around. It, yeah. The interface and technology should not make us serve it. Mm -hmm. It should serve the artists, and that's the way that, that you know, has to go. And that's why I'm excited of uh, working at this company in development for the first time, because I have an influence, direct influence on development of the product. Tell us a little bit about where you came from and how, how, what your trajectory has been. What was your initial interest as a filmmaker? Uh, well, I... Uh, Dreamed about going to USC Film School as a kid, and so I got I got into that program. And Where was were you? Where'd you grow up? North Carolina. Ah. Yeah, so I was from North Carolina, and when I went to my high school and said, you know, the, the, you meet with the counselors, and they say, where do you want to go to college? And I said, USC, and she handed me the book for University of South Carolina. And I was like, <laughs> uh, not that one. And, and, and I said, the one, and she goes, we don't have a book for for any of that. No one's you can't ever do that, yeah. son. So I was like, okay, I already got a book. I wrote off and got one. Here it is. And so. Uh, but but that, so that was a great experience to go there and to get the great uh, education and then after that I went to American Film Institute attended the AFI and um, I just love film 
in general. I think it's an amazing art form. I think it's collaborative. Um, I, I think it's really unique. Did you make any films before you went to USC film school? Or? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean uh, on video obviously as, mm -hmm. a, as a kid, Super 8 movies and video and uh, I did that in my portfolio. I had paintings and music and uh, so I, I, I sing and you know write and, and do paintings and I love photography and I had won several awards in collage work and um, so I just love visuals and audio and that's what film kind of brings all that together in this experience. It's amazing, you know, and, and really can move people. Um, and share the human condition, I think it's really important. So after AFI, which was a three-year program? Uh, yeah. yeah. Then, then um, what was the next step? Did you get an agent? Did you start no, taking no. meetings? In the, in the time period in the early 90s, um, visual effects were really starting to take off on a wide level, and it was a really uh, growth period, but there were no schools that taught it. There were no animation, animation programs were, were, were hand-drawn animation at that time. There were really no computer programs, no animation. So I was self-taught, and I was at film school, and I remember seeing the advertisement from this company that I'm working for now called New Tech for a thing called the Video Toaster. And it was like, you can own a TV studio for you know $4,000 or whatever it was. So as a student, like trying to make these films, I saw this product and I was like, wow, if I could have that, I could do blue screen and I could do animation. And I could, you know, so I got really excited and um, I got one of those and started learning on the Amiga, the great Amiga computer that yep. was yep. able to do all that video and sound back then when, when no other computer could do it. And um, I taught myself animation from that and I, um, Initially, didn't buy it for that. I bought it for more of the production side of things, the green screen and all of that, and you know the editing. And but then, when I thought about it, it's like the actors for, for student films, like they never showed up, and I had to buy pizza for them. I didn't have any money, and it's like, oh, I can do animation, and like everybody will show up, and I'll I'll control it all, and I can be god of the universe, you know. And so animation was just appealing because from a film student perspective, you know, it was like I can make this happen without having to rely on anyone else. Uh, creatively, so I taught myself that, and the timing was perfect because Hollywood was just, you know, television production was starting to take off with visual effects, and you know, you had the Ally McBeals coming along. And oh, like, oh, tell tell, tell everybody about, about the yeah. Ally McBeal. Yeah, I worked on that um, with uh, Rick Kerrigan. It's a really awesome uh, visual effects supervisor and a team at uh, Encore um, Visual Effects in Hollywood on season one for Ally McBeal. So all the exploding heads and tongues and all that stuff plus the baby. The so baby. I was a supervising animator for the baby, and we did, um, you know, the baby did appear its initial appearance uh, dancing, which was a motion capture file, but it also did like all these other, you know, appearances with roller skating and all this kind of stuff, throwing a spear through her heart and all that. It was all hand animated um, at the time and hand tracked because there were no tracking softwares back then. Mm -hmm. So I learned it really through the school of hard knocks, you know, doing everything by, you know, skinning your teeth and just by the rolling your sleeves up and getting in there. So. But it was a great opportunity too, because there you could get into the industry very easily because no one knew how to do this stuff. So it was a great entry as opposed to now. I think there's so many kids coming out of school with an actual you know certificate or education in animation, particularly. You know, it's a different it's a different game. But it was great to be in on the ground floor. Was there a real time crunch working in TV trying to make Absolutely. animated things? I mean, so you learn how to do stuff, photo real things very quickly. You don't have much of a schedule and a budget. I mean that was. I mean we we used Lightwave a lot in those days because it. I mean it had, it did everything in the package and it was a, we were able to meet the deadlines. You know at the time there really wasn't uh, any other solution that w that was uh, capable of that. So it was it was great and I and I went and worked at Netter which is famous for Babylon Five and mm. uh, we did a lot of uh, CG shows there and films and um, that was a great experience and 
And, uh, you know, so it's been doing about 17 years, all many different companies, Station X and, you know, my own company in Glendale. Um, which what was, was your company Ignite called? Ignite Digital Studios. And um, I worked on the stereoscopic IMAX uh, film, The Aliens of the Deep Project there. Well, that's um, something I want to ask about. How does 3D um, get involved in this as far as your workflow? Does it affect how you do your animations when you, when you know the end result is going to be a 3D product? Yeah, it's 3D stereoscopic because, you know, there was a lot of terminology of 3D being thrown around for a long time. It just meant 3D animation. But 3D, as people are using oh, it now, mm -hmm. is 3D stereoscopic, which means essentially two cameras that repl replicate the human eyes. So, yes, it does affect the process. It's less important uh, in 3D, I would say, because we're already working in 3D space. So everything already has to exist in 3D space. Um, in, in, you know, as it would in the real world. So things that are 10 feet away from things, they're, they're actually 10 feet away in the program. Mm -hmm. you know, like it, so you, you know, know exactly what the distance is. You know the, the distance Distance is. between the two cameras. But, but what, 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 what it does affect is that we did uh, cheat a lot. So when you're doing you know, 2D, like a one eye, you know, the old way of doing uh, film and visual effects and TV shows, you're just trying to get an image that looks right. It may not be right when you get in there and actually look at the, where everything is, but it looks right. So that, the problem that it, that it gives us is that when you, have to, when you work in stereo, it actually does have to be right. And so a lot of the compositing tricks uh, that you would do to cheat things or to put a card in there with smoke on it or you know, those kinds of things, they look like cards. They, the, the cheat is revealed in 3D space. So it starts looking like a pop-up book mm. or things that are, you know, when, you're, when you were doing things for visual effects and TV, you could cheat something that was closer, but it was supposed to be far away, like a rocket ship was supposed to be far out there, but it was actually closer because you wanted it to do a certain thing with the fire coming out of the back and the particles needed to interact you know, in, in a closer way. So you could cheat that when you didn't know that it was actually closer. But when you have the perspective of the second eye, yeah. you yeah. now know that it's close and it looks wrong. Mm. So it does uh, challenge... Uh, uh, technically the pipeline is challenged but also the rendering and the management of the data is the other challenge so you have twice as much you have twice as much storage space you have twice as much you know data that you have to really handle and so that's the issue hmm. um, and then the other issue uh, coming out of the back end is is display and particularly I think important to independent filmmakers is home display because a lot of our products would be, you know, going to a home market maybe or selling, you know, through DVD channels or, you know, download through the internet and displayed. And it's like there's really not a standard for the home stereoscopic display. And the manufacturers of all the LCD screens and all the TVs and things, they, they don't have a standard. Mm. So that's why it's successful at the theater level because you have things like Real 3D, you know, and... And these are standards where people can gather around that and it actually becomes the way that something is, is perceived and seen by the audience. But when you don't have any hardware standards, it's all over the place, it's really hard to get that implemented. So it's going to be a challenge for the home market particularly. But I think what's good about it is what Jim was pushing it for, for, for Jim Cameron was pushing it for feature film, is that it maintains the film experience as an experience, as an event. Mm -hmm. So you go to an IMAX stereoscopic or you go to a, a, a stereo project of a movie where it lends itself to that. It's an experience that you can't have at home. Mm -hmm. So it keeps that alive for us, which is an important communal 
thing for people to do. And I think that's legitimate and valid. I do too. I just have been hearing, and this especially from young people, is they're very concerned about the idea that 3D movies are going to be charging a lot more money because um, a lot of young people already feel like movie prices are so high as it is, it's very difficult for them to go. Mm -hmm. And they want to see things in 3D, but if their tickets are going to be 15 bucks, mm -hmm. it's just going to really, you know, I worry sometimes about, uh, it seems like the box office is high, but it's we're losing actual people. Mm -hmm. We're just charging more. Mm -hmm. So I worry a little bit about that. Right. But I guess, is that is that necessary to support the technology, or is that well, just greedy? Well, I think things are expensive when they're first implemented. So they have the added cost of the glasses, and the projectors are very expensive. And, you know, the good news of that is, is that now that the projectors are, you know, switching over and being a lot of them being replaced for this digital projection for stereo, it's beneficial for the whole industry. Because it means that any way that we want to see a film, when you go into the digital projection realm, it can that projector can accommodate uh, how whatever we're showing, so we're we're kind of out of that those antique projecting you know systems that we had in the past. So I think that there's a good thing there. But anytime you introduce new technology at that level, there's there's an added expense in the beginning. It's expensive, just like what we did on Avatar. You know, like Jim Cameron. It took Jim Cameron to finance that and to make that happen on a big on the biggest film ever in history. To, to kind of you know create this process and to, for him to drive it and to have the vision of that, but now that that's happened, you're gonna you know you see trickle down to the rest of the community and the rest of the uh, you know uh, industry. So uh, it just takes time for things. You know the price points will will stay in line with what uh, you know. Obviously, if no one's going to the movies at fifteen dollars, you know they'll they'll make adjustments. And then this whole um, digital delivery idea where we. Theoretically, we save on prints, right? Because you just sort of beam it out to all right. the different. Is that is that actually occurring anytime yeah. soon? Yeah, and I think that that's that's a great thing because you know it really, um, you know, from what I've seen of the digital projection, we're losing nothing and we're gaining a lot from that. So you know, I love film as well, you know, uh, but. I think that sometimes it's overrated for what, you know, for, for projection purposes. You know, when you're looking at a third or fourth generation print of something, you know, come on. It's like we, the filmmakers are laboring over these images and we love this stuff. And it's like, you know, how many times have you gone to a movie and you've seen these scratches and these weird, you know, it's like, you know, I don't think that was in the, you know, in, in the cards when they were really, you know, worried about this. So I think that the great news is it gets us out of that realm mm -hmm. so that we can actually get closer to showing the audiences what our images that we wanted them to see. And then that's exciting, you know, because um, once that happens, it also will open up the door, I think, to more uh, uh, projects. We were just, um, I went to a festival, a women in film festival that they had a couple weeks ago, and there were all these great projects from around the world. Some, one great one from Australia that was um, done, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the project, but it was just so beautiful, and, and it was digital projection, and, and uh, you know, the filmmakers don't have to spend as much money now on getting their film you know out to the world so I think you know that's the problem of the past is that when the only way that your voice could be heard is if the studio backed you and invested in you and, and bankrolled you then the voices are you know minimized and I think now as we move forward the good thing about technology that brings uh, you know uh, the process to everyone is that 
we are all going to have a voice and, and the deciding factor is not going to be what studio funds you, but what your voice is, what your art is. And that's the important thing. And I think that, you know, that, that's, that's, that's what's exciting to me about the whole uh, shift over with digital. You know, not even just for projection, but we were talking earlier a little bit about the digital SLRs and that whole, you know, the access to the technology, um, you know, is, is very important. Keeps getting easier, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you were just recently at NAB, and right. um, it seemed to me, just from the reports, I didn't get a chance to go, but from the reports that I was hearing, that there was kind of a revolution going on there. There was some very new technology that's going to change things a lot. What, what was your impression of the show this year? I thought it was a great show. Um, I've been to a lot of NABs, and for, for the first time this year, I saw a real shift over and acknowledgement of this kind of technology, the DSLRs and... Um, all of that technology was very present. All of the manufacturers, you know, had a version of a rig or were supporting the technology in some way. You know, um, also real live uh, production streaming and HD were, were big and stereoscopic mm -hmm. was big everywhere. Everybody was, you know, had an idea about how that could be implemented and how it could be, uh, you know, uh, solidified for uh, in a product for consumers. And so that's still, you know, in the works and everybody's still trying to work that out. But it's great that they're, you know, talking about it and thinking about it. Um, and uh, you know, I went uh, representing New Tech. I was there showing some of the Lightwave stuff, and they have a great product, the TriCaster series. And, Can you and, tell us a little bit about the TriCaster? It's something that we're interested in. Um, um, apparently, you can broadcast over the internet. Almost, you can have your own station almost Absolutely. over the internet with this thing. It's, it's it's in line with what New Tech has always done, and what I love about the company is they they took a whole truck of video equipment that would cost you know hundreds of thousands of dollars from a, a network and they made a little box that actually will do HD television production uh, with virtual sets where you can you know it looks like you're on CNN and you're just sitting in your living room you could stream live on the internet this whole uh, it's got a nonlinear editing system in it um, it has um, you know uh, you can do uh, titling and it just all, all the TV production, you know, the virtual set stuff with green screen and um, a switcher, a, a switcher and all, all the live cameras you can be feeding in and the transitions you can do. And it's just it blows me away. It's actually so uh, amazing to see all the functionality in this little tiny. You know, How much little, does that thing cost? Um, you know, off the top of my head, I'm not exactly sure of exactly the price point, um, but it's you know, you can you can find it on their website. Um, uh, I, I think it's uh, you know several thousand dollars for the um, there's a there's a HD model, but they have a whole line of products. So they have some that are they're SD, which are perfect for streaming on the internet if that's your primary focus. And then the, the product scales all the way up to HD. And then they just announced another uh, product, the 800, I believe, series that has a whole lot more inputs and is rack mountable and it's a bigger thing. So they have a whole range of products, you know, and, and uh, it's being used by for example, like fifth graders in, in schools to make TV shows. And it's at that level. And then they also have, you know, the high-end uh, productions that are being done for sports events and, you know, all of that. So it's, it's a very cool product um, in line with what we're talking about, which is technology that is affordable compared to what, where it was, the price point before, you know. Um, Plus, you don't need a lot of people to run it. Like, uh, I watched that Twit network and Leo Laporte has a staff of maybe two or something, yeah. and he seems to be able to run the yeah. whole thing right from there and do the show at the same time. Yeah, New so Tech was doing amazing. demos at the show where you know the person who was demoing it, Kiki, mm -hmm. uh, was actually doing running the show herself. Yeah, she had the TriCaster sitting right in front of her, and she was the talent 
on the virtual set. <laughs> so and talent she, the, and she crew. looked like she was on CNN and she was running the show and she was switching to the other people and she was doing the whole thing. It was really cool to see. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about that and they're like, well, I really don't have the infrastructure or the thing for, you know, and I was like, uh, you, you got don't yourself. Have a chair and a desk? You got yourself and a finger. You <laughs> click the mouse and you, you know, that's pretty much where it's at. And yeah. like New Tech, does, the, the, Tim Jennison that owns the company is the visionary that started the company. He's really cool like that. He thinks about things in this way and he really, has always come up with products that enable artists, and that's exciting to me, you yeah. know, because I love that whole part of the process. I think it's a great company. I think that they have great products, and um, I'm excited to be involved in the development of the Lightwave product there, the 3D software that I've always used, you know, on a lot of the things I've done. So, uh, I have a question about um, so visual effects supervisors and animators are they are they unionized? And if so, what part, what what uh, di division of the union are they in? Uh, the, the answer to that is yes and no, because there is an animation union, uh, and that you know, it's some of the larger studios. A lot of the people are members of that. But there's also a thing called the VES, the Visual Effects Society, and it's not, it's really not a union. It's just an organization. So it's pretty much the closest thing that the visual effects industry has to a union. Um, there's been some talk about the need for that and not needing that and is it you know and how fair is it that when it started you know visual effects and animation were kind of things that augmented unless it was an animated movie there were things that augmented the movie and it was like they come after craft services at the end mm -hmm. and then now you have these movies that are like primarily visual effects and they're still coming after craft services at the end it's like you know how fair is that so there are issues that have come up and I'm not really sure exactly how that will shake out, but I know that it's a great conversation to have because yeah. times have changed. Absolutely. You know? It's and like that um, meatball movie that we saw. The, uh, cloudy with cloudy the Chance, with the chance of meatball. meatball. This is a film by a lot of people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, like I mean, I think, um, I think we, need to, we need to look at that because as the technology moves that way, we need to protect the artists and craftspeople um, so that that at least there's some base, basic right. minimums afforded to people that are working these incredibly long hours and not getting huge amounts of recognition per se. That's right. You know, it's an important point because there is an infrastructure based on the 75 plus years of filmmaking where certain gills uh, you know, old-time gills in Hollywood are are very entrenched, and so the you DGA have the DGA should absorb the visual the, effects. The department. DGA is a great one. They, you know, they have the Cinematographers Guild. You have the Producers sure. Guild. You have you know SAG, Editors Guild, the Editors Guild. All of these things exist, and they're an entity. But when you have, or you know, on, on Avatar, all the vir virtual staff people, the people who are in virtual production and virtual art department. They, those guilds don't even know what to make of us. They don't know, like, are we in the art director's guild? Are we in the visual effects? Do we, like, nobody knows. Bottom so, line, are you getting residuals on no, Avatar? So that's no. a problem. Yeah, so, but the problem is, is that no one uh, understood, even for awards, like we would have awards where, you know, you have, there's, there's an infrastructure in place for the post facility, which was Weta, to accept awards for things. And then when they get up, you know, we're kind of at the mercy of, you know, maybe they'll speak and say that Rob Stromberg did a great painting that was, you know, or maybe I created an environment in, in the VAD that won. It, an example was the Visual Effects Society, the award that won for um, best environment in the film was one called Bioluminescent Jungle. And it was an amazing, you know, it, it was a, it was a really cool, you know, uh, scene where it was the one we talked about a little earlier, where where all um, the little jellyfish all the little are jellyfish there. are coming, and he basically runs through, and um, Jake 
Uh, yeah, I remember touches. that very much. Yeah, so that was one of the highlights of the movie, according mm -hmm. to the VES. They gave this the sure. award. Well, this was actually uh, created and born in our process of the virtual art department. So we laid this out initially in this workspace um, where it there was, there was no matte painting or anything that, that this was born from. This particular scene, which was not often the case, but in this particular case it was, um, you know, most of the time we work from a matte painting, at least of one perspective, and then we would take that and in, in the in our in my department we would translate it into a 360 degree view of a world, which is already a challenge. But we also found that the the, the VAD, the virtual process, um, was a place where you could also design this stuff. And so from inception, so it became a legitimate design tool in addition to the old way that you would do it, which is you'd have, you know, a matte painter would do it and then it would translate down the line and eventually. So we did that most of the time. But we also found that in these certain instances like this, that there was an alternative. This new technology brought a new way to think about things. Like maybe it's just as valid to, to you know, in some instances to do it in the virtual space and start it there and, and create it there. And so this proved that for me. It was a very proud moment. I was sitting at the VES and, you know, it won the award. And I had initially created this environment myself in, in the VAD and given it to Jim on the stage and him and, you know, the production designer, Rob Stromberg and Rick Carter and all, everybody had input and made, you know, adjustments, but it pretty much passed through as it was created and it made it through to the final movie and was awarded this beautiful award. We're at the VES and obviously because the infrastructure in is in place to award the post facility, which is Weta. That's who gets up and speaks and all that, you know, and it's like we're sitting there and I'm sitting there going, oh okay, gosh. great. I created this environment and, it did, and, and Weta did a beautiful job rendering and all of that and, and, you know, such hard work and they're just a great artist and great company. But there was this whole process that went on for several years with Jim Cameron and designing this and we kind of, because it was so cutting edge, there really was not the infrastructure in place to recognize fully all of those contributions. People didn't even kind of understand what that was. but. It really, I mean, Jim liked to say that it was where he made his movie. It was the, you know, uh, it, it was the workspace where he made the movie. Do you think that he would be an ally if you wanted to take something like this up with the various guilds? Do you think that he would walk in with you to the... He's definitely been supportive because if you notice when he got up and got his award, um, uh, I think it was, uh, I'm trying to remember which award it was, but he, 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 he was awarded, uh, you know, best director and best picture and he got up and looked, one of the first things he said was, you know, the whole virtual team that I worked with. And so he was, he was very right. gracious and very supportive. And he's always been. He's a great guy and he's very uh, loyal and he has no problem. It's extremely <laughs> legitimate at this point. And it's a lot, I mean, th what's happening is everything is moving extremely quickly. And so what uh, my, my fear would be that if you let it get too far out, you're not going to be able to take it back. Look at reality TV. Right. It is across the board the right. most popular genre. It is not unionized. Those people are worked like mules. They're not called writers. They're called anything but writers when they are, in fact, writing the shows in the editing room. So you want to um, gather some of your more powerful cohorts and get somebody like Jim to ally with you and walk into these places and say, we, you know, we are as much of a force in, in modern um, storytelling as the art department or as the editing department. Because, I mean, truly, if you, what do people remember from Avatar is precisely what you're discussing. 
You know, the story is, is a sort of old mythological story that's been told many times. It resonates because it is a classic human story. But what made it so superlative and what made people respond is that entire un, undiscovered division that you are coming from. Yeah. I think definitely the process that Jim went through, through, you know, making the movie in real time in this way, changed the movie. It was a better movie, obviously, because of that. And his vision to put together that whole, you know, to, cre to take these various technologies that were floating around and make them into something that fed the director, that allowed the actors to be a part of the process, that allowed the art department and art direction and production design to be a part of the process in real time. It's the first time it's ever been done. Which and is why it didn't feel like these other ones where right. you go see them and you just are like, ugh, it's dead. Yeah, they're exactly. dead. Yeah. There's the spirit, no soul. The human soul was missing because it wasn't there. It wasn't yeah. present. And spontaneity, and in, like you were saying. Right. The ability Avatar, the human soul was right there. Jim, Jim was right a part of the process. Everything was by his hand, and he touched every frame. I mean, it was also, frankly, it was a little strange to me at the Academy Awards when they, you know, they give out the Cinematographer's Award. And I, I mean, the guy, you know, gr I, I, great for everyone. I want everyone to get recognition. But to me, like, Jim Cameron should at least have been on that. You know, yeah. from my, I mean, he, his, he held the camera through, you know, 90% of the movie and made every decision and was the cinematographer, wow. was the, you know, and so, and he's just brilliant. And so for me to sit there and watch him not get that award and not, you know, and, and it was hard for me to watch that because I knew how much he had contributed. See, this is what I think is going on in terms of Hollywood. Hollywood is a very sort of old-fashioned old environment. Um, at least the, the, the people in power, the establishment, they're very old school. So in, um, in the case of this movie, Avatar, I think the establishment felt that that in awarding it too many things, they would in fact be awarding the technology and they're very concerned about that. Whereas once the technology is, is accepted and integrated as a part of the artistic process, it'll be less alienating to them and more likely that they will and, you know, embrace it. But right now they're saying, well, you know, we are a sort of flesh and bones type of world and this movie is something else. And we don't exactly know what it is, but we're scared to to give it too much play because then where where do where do we yeah, come does it, in? Does it make us obsolete? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have to you have to find a way to integrate into that old system while you're changing it right. in order to to well, in my experience, there's there you know part of human nature is when you're faced with something like that that's alien, that's technology based. You know, I, I've had experiences with production designers where, at first glance, they were very intimidated by the technology and didn't want anything to do with it and thought it was like, you know, a total, you know, thing. And then they, and then the final analysis came back and said, uh, this is the only way that we could do this. Thank you for making me understand that this is a, another tool for me as the artist to use to make this happen. And in other words, it, it, it allows me to do it in real time. You yeah. know, and the great thing about this workspace for uh, the, the virtual art department, what it brought to the table for design, was that in the past, artists would sit in design or art directors and set designers would design things, you know, maybe in Maya or something where they're looking through some kind of weird 3D camera that has no relationship to the real world. So what we brought to the process was the design process was fed through a production relevant perspective. So when the production designer could come in and even though it was in the computer, it was a it was a completely digital set, and he could hold 
something in his hand and walk around the room and, and use that as the virtual camera to look around a set as if it was the real, really there, he was standing in it, and the camera lens was relevant to a real world camera. Let's say it was gonna be you know, inside of home tree or something. You would use like a 24 millimeter or a 35, you know, wider lens, and he could look at it from what he thought the director would be shooting you know, on the day and then it fed the design. So you get in there and you go, oh, well these columns, like you know, in the computer, they looked like they were gonna be tall enough. But here, it, doesn't, it looks different. So we need to make those taller because now I'm looking at it the way that the filmmaker would through a real world camera. And so that was what we brought to the process was this interactive real world camera walkthrough in real time. And it fed the design. It changed the way that things, you know, it, it got them into the movie early so to say it got them into that workspace so that they were relevant to the movie from their inception through their design process and that's what was missing in the past is you would design things in this weird you know kind of 3d realm and all this it wasn't relevant and you get there and you're like oh this doesn't work mm -hmm. you know it, it, we, we thought it was going to be something but it's not and the same way with 2d storyboards it was kind of like you know 2d can do so much but then it's really not taking into consideration spatial relationships and scale and all of that in the way that, that you know, when you get into real world. So this process does. It's all very similar to filmmaking and it, and it's, and it's, and it feeds design with filmmaking in mind, which is what it, one of my mantras of my whole career is I love to think about every problem that we face. People want to get into technical blah, 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 and all these other things and you know political stuff and whatever. But the reality is, is that what can we do to make these images and these scenes look as good as possible and support the filmmaker's vision? You know, and so that's really what, it, if, you, if you go back to that for everything, it always solves the problem. You always know exactly what, what step to take because it's feeding what the goal is. And sometimes it gets lost in the shuffle, you know. And I think that's why, you know, Jim's vision was so strong in this and that it, it was really his only way to make this movie. He said that multiple times. He thought about making this movie before, but he knew if he did not have this technology in place, this movie would have been like those other movies that we're talking about that have no soul because it would have been so much guesswork and so much after the fact and so much, you know, dead, dusty, you know, kind of not a living organism. Fake, very fake. fake. Very fake and it doesn't resonate and, you know, but, but he knew he needed to have that soul present. His spirit, his, you know, director's soul present in making this movie and that's what he put in place and it was amazing to see that happen over the five years. I started in 2005 working on the film. So it was a great, uh, it was a great process. I was on the film, I think, for three and a half, almost four years straight. Um, and then after that, I worked on Tintin with, uh, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg's unit here in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. which also used a version of this technology, but it's a very different film. Um, but Avatar was just really amazing to see it be born, you know, and, and, and that it worked and that it was, it was, you couldn't dispute that the film was made better because of this, you know, and it, it, it empowered um, Jim Cameron, you know, to, to, to really do the best um, you with know, what he does, which is, you know, being a brilliant director. So so the, the film comes out on DVD um, right. in two days or something, yeah. right? the 20, yeah. 25th, yeah. I think? Uh, is it going to come out with a 3D version for these new 3D TVs? Do you know about that? Like a Blu-ray? You know, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure about that. I know it's not going to have any extras in this first version. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm looking forward to when they, when they do incorporate those. Yeah. 
All right, well, I think we have to wrap it up. But uh, at the end of our podcast, we do this thing called Film Bites. Okay. So I'm springing this on you. Oh, great. Um, where we just <laughs> give a little bit of advice to filmmakers out there so uh, that might help them make their film something that you've learned along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little piece of advice. If you have it, you can give it to them. Otherwise, there's been a lot of really relevant uh, information here throughout. Um, I have one. Good. I mean, that I, I always just learn so much from our guests, but, but one of the things that's jumped out to me just listening to you is that um, making art by committee uh, is a disastrous idea, um, which is why we have a lot of mediocre art coming out of the studios. Um, in the case of Avatar, as, as you've explained, which I, I probably wouldn't have believed it if you didn't tell me, but essentially one man changed the face of, of modern film just because he had the finances, the drive, the vision, and the ability to select the right people to do so. Whereas, you know, we could have been sitting here for the next 60 years with between Sony arguing with Warner and this one and the Blu-ray and the that and this whatever. It just takes one person. So I guess the lesson is if you have something that you want to do that seems really large, it doesn't mean that you can't do it. And it doesn't mean that it won't impact the entire industry. Right. And I I would say, you know, um, Joseph Campbell uh, always used to say, follow your bliss. And I think that many times when we're faced with these uh, you know, immense challenges, I don't think I can express how much of a challenge it seemed when we were in the middle of Avatar, when Jim was talking about all the stuff he wanted to do in the world. And, you know, like we're all going, okay, we're going to do our best, but, you know. And so we're, I mean, seriously, like everybody was all together going, gosh, you know, we hope we can live up to his standard because he's so amazing. And when you listen to what you know is the right thing to pursue, what your voice is and what you contribute and how valid you are as a part of this, this living community that we're a part of, you can't go wrong. So you just step up to the plate and you, and you do what you know how to do and you contribute in an honest way what your voice is. You can't go wrong because that's really what is the core of independent film. And if you think about it, it's the core of even the biggest blockbuster that was ever made was Avatar was, was strong and, was, and resonated because that happened. You know, it, it was the voice, you know, Jim's voice, he remained true. And, you know, I can't say that everybody was always, I mean, now you can look back and go, yeah, Avatar was a great success and it was the biggest move. But, you know, he didn't always get that the whole time. You know he was facing immense challenges with the studios and with all of that to make this happen and to convince people that his vision was legitimate. And he stayed on track. So even in the tempest and the storm of all the doubters that are going to come, and they always do, stay on what your honesty and what your bliss is and what your, what your vision is, and you will not go wrong. That's what I would say. Yeah. All right. That's a I great like one. It. I like it. Okay. So thank you, Rob, for uh, being you. here. And thank Ben, you. thank you so much for Thanks sitting for in. All right. Good. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening. It was great. All right. We'll see you all next time.